3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, 3CR Breakfast listeners. This is Claudia and I'm delighted to be back in the studio. It's been quite a while. I think my last time here was at Radiothon and that was such an exciting show. Uh, it was so wonderful to have so many people calling in with feedback on the show and making valuable contributions to the work we do here. So big thanks to everyone who uh, gave us a shout out or uh, put a few pennies in the 3CR pot. We really appreciate it. So uh, having had COVID this month, um, it's been a pretty dull few weeks for me. So uh, really exciting to be back in the saddle here. I'll be joined shortly by Ella and we'll also be hearing from Jacob, although he's not in the studio this morning, but uh, he's bringing us some wonderful uh, audio to share with uh, the audience this morning. It's a busy show today, as always, on 3CR Breakfast. We'll be hearing from the Queer Indonesia Archive, a group who are digitally archiving the lives and experiences of queer and trans Indonesians. And that comes from Jacob and the Queering the Air team. I'll be speaking at 7.30am with Roxanne Lorenz from the Arts Law Centre of Australia about the draft findings of the Australian Productivity Commission in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander arts and crafts. This report uh, was just handed down yesterday actually, so we're really lucky to have Roxanne with us this morning to um, unpack the uh, preliminary findings there. And a bit later in the show, we'll have the Assistant Federal Secretary of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, Laurie-Anne Sharp, with us. She's going to be talking about the situation uh, with nurses who are on the ground uh, caring for everyone during this winter period where everyone seems to be getting sick. They're uh, calling out for the community to support them by supporting themselves, so taking care of us during winter so that we don't end up in hospital. So that'll be uh, coming up at 8.15. And I think we'll start off with a, a song to get us going this morning. So thanks for tuning in and we've got plenty coming up for you today.
You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. Come 3CR Radio Thong Fundraiser, 3 to 7pm, Saturday 23rd of July. Uprise Radio and Stick Together join forces bringing you an afternoon of discussion and music. Climate, Capitalism and the Future. Zelda Grimshaw from Blockade Australia. Dr Colin Long, Sustainability Campaigner from Victoria Trades Hall. And Anthony Kelly from Melbourne Activist Legal Service. Followed by tunes from local legends Liz Thomas and Maxine Fink. Followed by Sooty Owls. Refreshments, raffle and fun. Climate, Capitalism and the Future. Uprise Radio and Stick Together event, 3CR Fundraiser, Saturday, July the 23rd, 3 to 7pm, Black Spark Cultural Centre, 253A St George's Road, Tram 11 will get you there, stop 30, $10 solidarity, no one turned away. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm on 3CR 855 AM Homeless in Hotels a 3CR supporter The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of the most critically acclaimed documentaries from across the globe. Highlights include opening night film Eternal Spring, bringing to life an unprecedented story of defiance on the 20th anniversary of a TV station hijacking in China. Australia, my home, an Albanian migration, depicting the stories of three generations of Albanian migrants to Australia, and many more. July the 20th to the 31st at Cinema Nova, a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. You're here with Claudia in the studio. And we just heard a track from Alara that was birthing the resistance. So we're going to go to our first segment and uh, Jacob uh, is never far away. He's bringing us a wonderful segment this morning. Uh, He spoke to two people from the Queer Indonesia Archives. 
last week. That was Bo Newham and Sidi Fahasta. They're part of the project that are recording and celebrating material reflecting the lives and experiences of queer Indonesia. Currently, there are three online exhibitions that you can access, the Indonesian Queer Zines, Queer Jakarta in the 90s, and AIDS and Queers in Indonesia. So Jacob and his co-host Sastya Siddiq from Queering the Air spoke to the organisers of the exhibitions to find out more. Hello, my name is Bo. I'm originally from Sydney, Australia, um, but up until the pandemic, I was living in Indonesia. I co-founded Queer Indonesia Archive with my friend uh, Ace at the tail end of 2019. And yeah, I've been working alongside City um, for those exhibitions and for the field trips that we've been doing this year. Hey, I'm CD. I'm from Indonesia, uh, Magelang, basically, like in the central part of like Java. And yeah, I work with QIA, uh, Queer Indonesia Archive, since October 2020. We curated like these three exhibitions, and one of them was about like HIV/AIDS. You've collected this really large amount of um, archives documenting the queer history of Indonesia. Do you want to tell us what was the process for researching and gathering all of these materials? So basically, we, uh, at the very first stage, we collected these uh, research documents from like the US uh, researchers that did a lot of like research for, I think about 30 years yeah, boy, in Indonesia. Yeah, mostly active in the 90s though. Um, so essentially there was two U.S. Uh, researchers, uh, Tom Bailstorff, uh, who focused mostly on gay men and trans women, and Evelyn Blackwood, who focused a lot on queer women and uh, trans masculine folk. Uh, and yeah, Tom Bailstorff thankfully digitized a large collection of community magazines whilst he was there, and he, he gave us these magazines, and they kind of served as a basis of our collection. Um, we've rescanned a lot of those magazines now because, you know, his versions kind of were, you know, in cheap photocopy shops in the 1990s, so they weren't the highest quality. But um, using those magazines, what we do, we get a, um, a collection of people interested in one city uh, and we'll hand them the magazines and just be like, find everything you can find in these magazines <laughs> about this one place. And then we get them to kind of map out you know, who were the key people in that city, um, What name every organisation that was active in that city, name the main events. And then when we plan a field trip, we kind of use that research to kind of be like, okay, well, who's still around? What organisations are still around? Um, and then, you know, when we are speaking to people, we'll be like, okay, what about this event? What about that event? Um, so, yeah, that's the kind of, like, very early steps on how we do a field trip. Yeah, and then like we also support like all these community focused materials, which is like from the community, published by community, produced by community that with like this whole articles from mass media to give like a bit context on like how like the Indonesian or like the Indonesian mass media or the government sees uh, like the the queers community in Indonesia. 
So I know this is really important. I mean, this is amazing what you are doing. But I have this tough question, like, you know, being queer in Indonesia is illegal. So being queer Muslim is illegal as well. So in a Muslim country, how, how do you even get to do this project? I mean, is there any backlash when you're doing this um, um, exhibition while you're doing it? Talking about Indonesia and queer, um, I think as of now, we don't really have like single law that make it illegal, uh, like in terms of like legal. Uh, Criminalization. Criminalizations, yeah. But then like there are other couple kind of like law that has been used to kind of like persecute like the queer community from for their activities. Mm. For example, like anti-pornography things and uh, other things. But then, yeah, and also, like, uh, in terms of, like, Muslim country and now how, like, the mo- queer Muslim try to uh, deal with, like, this whole narrative mm. that being queer Muslim, it's kind of, like, sinful and things like that. Yes. There are a lot of, like, uh, new movements from the queer, scol- queer Muslim scholars to kind of, like, reinterpret, like, the... the the script and then like the Bible and things like that, yeah. and it's it's, and they kind of like make alliance with these uh, 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 religious groups in Indonesia also to mm-hmm. start to give like them uh, uh, space to accept to be accepted like in in, in the mosque in the uh, uh, Bible studies and things like that. So far, I would say we've been pretty lucky in regards to any backlash. Um, and I feel like some of that has been some strategic choices the archive made, even in terms of the name itself, like Queer Indonesia Archive. Queer isn't a particularly common mm. um, terminology in Indonesia. But what we did need to do is avoid... Well, in Indonesia, the most common acronym is LGBT. Um, but that was mostly popularized by conservative groups um, during a big moral panic in 2016. So LGBT has a really strong loaded connotation in the country. Um, so you won't find that acronym anywhere on our yeah. on our website for that reason. Um, and also we don't we don't publish pu- publish anything in our public collection that was made after 2010 just to um, kind of keep us out of any kind of contemporary um, issues on the ground, but also we don't want to be the ones that give undue attention to activist groups or movements or um, events that are going on um, in contemporary times because, uh, you know, the archive itself does kind of get different types of attention than maybe, you know, these activist groups are aiming for. Um, and because most of our stuff is before 1999, um, which... Um, for people who don't know, was the end um, was ninety eight ninety nine was the year that uh, the new order regime ended in Indonesia, um, and you know, from what I've noticed and how people react to our collection, because it is bec- from that earlier time, it's kind of seemed to be talking about it Indonesia that 
kind of exist in the past, which yeah. kind of gives us a bit of a free pass sometimes. I know in this uh, particular release of your archives, you had three exhibitions, right? So there was one on AIDS um, and queers. Uh, you also spoke about queer Jakarta and Indonesian queer zines. Um, and I know, City, you were quite involved in the AIDS and queers in Indonesia exhibition. Tell us a bit about that. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the AIDS and queer exhibitions was... I mean, the process was interesting because uh, it started out with... Uh, Again, like those materials we had in hand from the zines that were scanned from the, by the researcher from the U.S. And then we tried to kind of like track, track down on how uh, the history of like HIV AIDS in Indonesia. Because when we read about it, like it's always been uh, from the official, which somehow like erased like the involvement of like the queer communities in in how they respond to like this HIV AIDS things since the 1983. And from the research that we did and then like uh, from the materials that we had, we finally find that the community has been act actively kind of like responding to like HIV AIDS issue and they've been trying to also push some uh, important regulations and also important uh, policy in order to deal with it uh, throughout the time. Uh, one of them like, because, um, yeah, one of them was about like access to condoms and then like how to promote condoms and how to make it like more uh, interesting for the communities because condom was part of like family plan program in Indonesia and it was only accessible for like married uh, couples, heterosexual and things, and then like this community tried to kind of like um, make couple of advertise uh, ads uh, in their publications just to promote it, uh, socialize it to like queer community, so that they are aware about like the the importance of having condoms uh, during sex, and also it shows also like this. Um, protest uh, from the trans women community in Jakarta back in 1985 or 87 because uh, the trans women and the gay community was stereotyped and one of the big uh, regular events that tr uh, Jakarta's trans women uh, hold in the past was this uh, blood donor mm. and they were they were banned uh, to donating like their blood. LGBT people has been been stereotyped um, as um, for contracting HIV for carrying AIDS um, in the past, but it's it's different now. I think in Singapore, I mean in Southeast Asia, there's not much awareness about HIV. People don't know about prevention like condoms and also prep medication, um, that kind of thing. And even like if somebody has um, HIV, they if they are treated, they can't they can't um, they they can't. Um, 
contract um, the disease to another person. They can't pass the disease to another person mm. if they get treated. But in Southeast Asia, there's not much awareness about it till today. Um, in, in Australia, definitely there's awareness everywhere. You get posters and, and campaigns everywhere. But um, is this something that you're trying to do uh, back in Indonesia, like raising a lot more awareness and educate people about HIV and AIDS? Yeah, I mean, it's it's part of like uh, the, the research that we did, like on how like then the community, because like in the first uh, first decade, like from the 83s uh, until like 93, because like they are stigmatized, no uh, sufficient information about HIV AIDS, mm. uh, official uh, or the government didn't really kind of like publish something to, to let them know about like this uh, issue. But then like, the queer community has been stigmatized mm. and things like that. So there were like this, uh, uh, people uh, like queer community was kind of like afraid of like their own identity. Okay. And they started to kind of like, they, they sent letters to like the publications, uh, community publications, the scenes like, uh, do I have to give up my gayness in order to avoid HIV AIDS? Mm. Wow. There are a lot of like those those type of questions, yeah. and yeah, it makes like the the community leaders uh, aware that they have to educate themselves uh, mm. and study it by themselves instead of like waiting for the officials to study it. Mm. And they yeah, and then like they start to give these articles about HIV AIDS uh, that was translated from like the the. Victorian AIDS Council and things like that, and also they started to adapt like uh, posters from uh, other countries as well in yeah. order to let the communities knows that it's it's not uh, it's not about your your identity. It's about how to avoid it. And you're listening to breakfast on Three CR Community Radio. We've been playing a conversation with Bo Newham and Siti Vasata about the Queer Indonesia Archives, a collection of digital archives documenting the lives of queer Indonesians. Siti was just speaking about an exhibition on AIDS and queers and such really important things that are being unpacked in this conversation. There are three exhibitions which are coming out of this archive and we're going to hear about the other two a bit later this morning. So if you keep tuning in about 10 to 8, we'll be hearing a little bit more from City and Bo Newham. But now we're going to be talking about Aboriginal art and we have Roxanne Lorenz on the line to uh, speak to us. She's from the Arts Law Centre of Australia. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been producing art for thousands of years, yet the creation of works for commercial consumption is something that didn't occur until colonisation. The first Aboriginal artwork was sold in the Northern Territory in the 1930s, and since then, demand has spiralled and the industry now turns over in excess of $250 million per year. But not all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art that is being sold is authentic. Roxanne's going to join us in a moment to tell us about inauthentic arts and crafts and the Productivity Commission's recommendations to improve the sale and production of visual arts and crafts in this area. 
We're going to go to a short community announcement and then we'll be back with Roxanne. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQA plus communities and meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information and to hear our podcast episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash pxfana, spelt P-X-W-H-A-N-A-U. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch. And you're back on 3CR Breakfast. It's Claudia here in the studio this morning. We're going to be talking now with Roxanne Lorenz, a senior solicitor from the Arts Law Centre of Australia who advocates for the rights of First Nations artists. She's joining us now to explain the findings of a Productivity Commission report which was handed down yesterday and recommendations for change in the, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art and craft industry. Good morning, Roxanne. Good morning, Claudia. How are you? We're very well here. How are you? Good, thank you. It's a pretty chilly morning. Yes. <laughs> Hope you got your socks on. As well. <laughs> now, can you tell us uh, why this report was commissioned? It's a draft report. We've got the final report coming out in November. Can you backtrack a little bit so listeners can... Uh, hear about the, uh, the reasons and the need for this uh, report? Of course. So, look, this has been a very long-standing issue. Uh, at the Arts Law Centre, uh, we worked with the Copyright Agency and the Indigenous Art Code to start a campaign called Fake Art Harms Culture. So this campaign was all about raising the concerns uh, that artists have about the widespread sale of works that have the look and feel of being Indigenous but actually have no connection to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities at all. So we started that campaign to draw attention to this really important issue and to start lobbying the government about some meaningful changes to the law. So that kicked off in about 2016 uh, and since then we've seen a couple of bills introduced into Parliament 
uh, to make changes to the consumer laws uh, to make the sale of this inauthentic product illegal. Unfortunately, neither of those bills passed, uh, but on the upside, it certainly raised discussion about uh, the need to really do something about this issue. So uh, in 2020, I believe it was, the government uh, made a referral to the Productivity Commission to say that an in-depth study would need to be taken out to look into this issue and the effect that it has on the market and on uh, the, uh, I guess, pressures that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists have been facing in this area. And following about a year of consultation with stakeholders, uh, the Commission has now handed down that report and what we're hoping for is that some real meaningful government action uh, will finally take place to try and resolve these issues. Well, thanks for explaining that to foreground the discussion. Before we uh, ask you about the uh, findings and recommendations of the Commission, I thought it might be worthwhile just to have a bit of a chat about how diverse the industry actually is. Because as I said in my intro, uh, it's a $250 million industry and the range of uh, products that are being sold is quite broad, but also the way um, they're produced and the, the places that they're produced in and, and, the, and the marketplace as well is actually quite mm. complex. Absolutely. So it is a very complex uh, industry. Uh, obviously, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been creating visual arts and crafts for tens of thousands of years Uh, and during that time uh, the market has changed a lot. So what we uh, see as kind of the three key tiers of uh, the market would be your independent artists who uh, are often functioning with really uh, limited resources uh, and navigating the market themselves. Typically, uh, they might not fetch huge amounts of money from the sale of their artwork. Then we've got uh, artists that might be represented by commercial galleries. So perhaps they have slogged it out as independent artists for many years, uh, but they've got to the point that they've got that commercial representation. Uh, So those artists might fetch a little bit more for their artworks with the support and marketing of those uh, commercial galleries. And then the other tier would, of course, be the Aboriginal art centres across Australia. So they tend to be in regional and remote areas and uh, art centres function as a place where artists can turn up each day and access paints and be supported in their practice. And then the art centres help those artists to sell their works, whether it be to commercial galleries or private collectors. Uh, So they really are a very important part of the infrastructure uh, and support for uh, the sale of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artworks. Mm. So it's a really broad range of modes and and, uh, modalities. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And so the Commission has looked at 
the full range of art being produced and sold. What did they find? So essentially they found, uh, and we were very happy that they agreed that the inauthentic uh, art is a huge issue. Uh, So, I mean, back in um, when we kicked off the Fake Arms Culture campaign, uh, we underwent a number of uh, mystery shops uh, where we would go and target um, different uh, retailers to have a look at how much of the product was authentic and how much of it wasn't made by uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. And the Productivity uh, Commission report has confirmed that a huge amount of the market is made up of this fake product. So in terms of their key recommendations, uh, they have agreed with our uh, recommendation uh, that there needs to be a standalone law that does protect Indigenous cultural intellectual property Uh, So that's something that we really have been fighting for to say, look, if we've got this commitment to respect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, culture and to celebrate it, we need to make sure that it is protected. Uh, So the Commission has agreed with that and also looked at the current copyright laws, uh, which don't currently uh, protect uh, communal rights. So... Uh, Obviously, with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, culture, often it will be uh, the, uh, I guess... The community rather than the individual that creates or has worked on. It's the community. It's a communal right uh, that's often passed down from many generations rather than being held by an individual. So that's why the current copyright laws really don't uh, assist in that recognition of Indigenous cultural intellectual property. So uh, that's why we've got that recommendation for a new standalone law uh, to help support uh, and respect those rights. And just before you go on on that, sorry to interrupt, I just thought it might be um, useful just to uh, just unpack what we talk, we're talking about when we refer to intellectual property. Uh, we're talking about the designs and the sort of symbols. Yeah. Can you give some so examples look, of the types of things that would be covered by such an intellectual property absolutely. law? Absolutely. So it's quite broad. It, it can be anything from ancient stories that are passed down, sacred symbols uh, and unique motifs as well. Uh, So essentially this cultural knowledge and uh, stories and songlines that have been passed down generation to generation. And some of these symbols uh, do have uh, a very, you know, sacred meaning uh, to communities and often they should only be depicted in a certain way. Uh, so if they are uh, used in a disrespectful and inappropriate way, it can really uh, affect the well-being mm. uh, of the traditional custodians. Yeah, I was thought that was quite an interesting aspect of the report uh, where they sort of broke down the different types of impacts that, you know, misuse 
can have. There's actually been some court cases about the personal and cultural harms um, mm-hmm. as opposed to the economic harms that can be caused by unauthorised use. So, yeah, it's, it's a really wide pool of just stress and uh, loss that can result. Mm, well, the first case that we saw was back in 1994 and it's known as the Carpets case. And essentially what had happened was uh, a group of artists who'd had their works on display at the uh, Australian National Gallery uh, had had their works reproduced by a carpet company uh, that went off and manufactured the carpets over in Vietnam with uh, the designs of uh, the Aboriginal artists without their permission or consent. Uh, And it did go to court and uh, the court did consider all of that cultural harm that can happen uh, as a result of that infringement. Yeah, and the other side of the coin, of course, is the consumer. Consumers think they're buying something that is different to what they're actually purchasing and that can then have an effect on uh, consumer confidence but also the loss from a national heritage perspective as Australians, we want to be proud of our First Nations culture and we want the, the real thing to be out there in distribution, not, not fakes that are misrepresenting what that culture's about. Yeah, that's exactly right. And on that point, I guess we were quite disappointed uh, that the Productivity Commission hasn't supported our recommendation of uh, changing the consumer law to make the sale of fake or inauthentic product illegal. Uh, We were really hoping that we could just stamp out this fake stuff because, you know, we've got such incredible culture um, here and such a great opportunity uh, to share that culture and for tourists to be able to take home something that's real. Uh, But the uh, Productivity Commission has instead uh, recommended that uh, inauthentic products have mandatory labelling that stipulate this isn't an authentic product. Uh, But it's a bit of a shame because we're still going to have that inauthentic product out there. Uh, And studies have shown that uh, they tend to be a lot cheaper uh, than the authentic product. Uh, So, I mean, putting that decision back uh, with consumers uh, might not solve that issue because people do tend to gravitate to what's cheap and accessible, unfortunately. And the one of the reasons it seemed that the, the Commission went down that path was in order to place the onus of labelling onto the producer of the inauthentic product rather mm. than the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander producer. Did they talk about issues that they might have with compliance and enforcing, enforcing that Yeah, well, look, it's still, um, I mean, I must admit the report is uh, about 366 pages, so I'm still working through it Mm. as it was only released yesterday. But uh, some of the concerns we'd have is uh, who's actually going to enforce this? Who's going to monitor it? Uh, The market is so uh, broad. Uh, Will it be... uh, 
placed on consumers to raise the issue and say, look, we believe that this product's being sold without the mandatory uh, inauthentic notice, uh, or will it be actively pursued? Uh, and how will people be penalised? What sort of fines and deterrents will be in place? If the uh, burden will then also fall on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities themselves to complain about something that's been out there in the market mislabeled, then they're having to carry that burden that ought to be uh, borne by the producer who's done the wrong thing. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like there's there's lots more that will uh, need to be explored and dealt with, but I guess uh, there's the process between now and when the final report comes out to uh, t- to hear submissions and sort of unpack some of that finer uh, practical side of things. Exactly. And I mean, we've seen a really positive willingness by the commissioners uh, who've been working on this report to meet and consult with the community. Uh, so we've got opportunities to meet with them and give some of this feedback and raise some of these concerns with them before the final report is released. Uh, so we're hoping we can get a bit more clarity about how this mandatory uh, inauthentic labelling uh, system would work and how it would be uh, enforced. Mm. And in the meantime, uh, if anyone's looking at a, a $2 uh, item in a souvenir shop, they're pretty much guaranteed that's going to be inauthentic. Apparently over 80% of general souvenirs and gifts, key rings, magnets, coasters, that type of thing, um, are not the real deal. Yeah, and it can be really difficult for consumers that aren't kind of um, studied up on this issue to know what the real um, stuff is because... Uh, unfortunately, you know, manufacturers have done such a good job in some cases ripping off uh, the artworks and uh, it can really have that look and feel that it is an authentic product. Uh, and it, it's unfair for the consumers that the onus is back on them to have to research. But uh, we often uh, just advise people to ask questions. If you go into a shop and you're wondering... I wonder who the artist is or where this is from. You know, it's within your rights to ask that question and if you don't get an adequate response, it's certainly a warning sign. Mm. And the other um, interesting aspect was that we're not just talking about tangible goods that you do buy in souvenir shops. Uh, Products can be digital, stock images Mm -hmm. that companies might use to that they might extract from online sources are also a huge part of um, the inauthentic arts market as well. So there's a full range of products out there that you might not even think fall under this banner that are uh, potentially being transacted and, and misrepresenting communities. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's great to see that there has been a push uh, in the private sector Uh, for companies to put in place reconciliation action plans, for example. Uh, But there is a danger that if a company is putting that uh, plan together and uh, goes onto a stock image website thinking that they've selected an authentic um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander designed work, 
uh, that they might have got something that's not been designed um, by uh, an appropriate person at all. Um, and that's not a good step when you're looking at um, a reconciliation action plan to launch something that doesn't actually reflect the culture. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning and sharing uh, those findings with us. Um, we'll look forward to perhaps talking to you again um, further down the track when the final report comes out in November. My pleasure, Claudia. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks, Roxanne. And that was Roxanne Lorenz from the Arts Law Centre of Australia speaking about the draft findings of the Australian Productivity Commission in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander arts and crafts. And that report was handed down yesterday. If you'd like to read a copy of the draft report, you can go to www.pc.gov.au and the Indigenous Arts draft tab will take you to that report and submissions in relation to the findings and recommendations are open until Monday 29th of August 2022 so if you're a person who is a consumer a producer a seller or an interested party please put in your um, response to the report because that's how they'll collate their information and uh, make this uh, reform the most uh, efficient that it can be and the most reflective of all the people uh, involved. And uh, the Arts Law Centre is there for advice on these uh, matters and you can get in touch with them toll free on 1800 221 457 or online at www.artslaw.com.au. We're going to go to a song now. We're going to hear from Alice Skye, Stay in Bed. And when we come back, we'll be hearing more from the Indonesian Queer Archive.
Kanye Gurujan, Kanderman. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Where I belong And you were listening to 3CR Breakfast. And before the announcement there, we heard Alice Skye with Stay in Bed. Next up, we're going to hear more from the Queer Indonesian Archives. Uh, earlier this morning, we heard from Bo Nguyen and Siti Vasacha speaking with the Queering the Air team about a series of exhibitions that are taking place online at present and they're celebrating the preservation of stories about queer Indonesians, including the experiences of queer Jakarta residents in the 90s and the experience of Indonesians during the AIDS period. Now we're going to hear the second part of that conversation and uh, we're going to hear a little bit about two more exhibitions that are part of this archive project. Uh, and I know community was a really strong theme throughout all three of the exhibitions. Um, some of the other ones, the Queer Jakarta one and the Indonesian Queer Zines one, really sparked my interest. So can you tell us a bit more about those? I was the one that pulled together the, the Queer Indonesia Zines exhibition. Um, so this one really explores all of the community publications that um, at the point of exhibiting that we've been able to collect. Um, I think luckily in the last few field trips we've done, we've also managed to collect a few more titles that we didn't know existed. Um, but, you know, throughout the 1980s, right up until the middle 2000s, when, the, you know, the internet kind of took over, um, these publications were the main ways that, um, you know, especially gay men communicated with one another. Um, you know, the biggest title in the collection is from Gaya Nusantara, um, the longest running um, LGBTIQ plus organization in Indonesia. Though at the beginning it was um, what, the KKLGN, the Kelompok Kerja Lesbian and Gay Nusantara, or the, the Gay and Lesbian Indonesian Working Group. Um, and they, I think it's 134 titles in their original run. Um, used to be sold in salons and um, at other gay and lesbian organizations or, um, yeah, like, um, you know, kind of clandestine um, bookshops that were willing to sell it. Um, and, they're, yeah, they're just really remarkable publications. There's, you know, not only do you get, you know, a lot of this information that's getting out, you also get some amazing, um, I guess, insight into the the arguments and discourse going between community members. Um, one of my favorite back and forths is um, Dede Otomo writes an essay um, sending out to the community being like, where are the lesbians? <laughs> and, you know, immediately uh, there's a very um, kind of insightful and like fierce response by a local lesbian activist kind of, you know, just pointing out all of the structural barriers there are to queer women being able to access public space, access resources, and kind of get involved in the same levels of activism as the rest of the community. Yeah. Um, there's also some amazing, um, uh, and this kind of grew as the magazines got more popular, but the, the personal section at the back of the magazines where 
people are kind of putting themselves out there and you know trying to connect with connect romantically or sexually with other members of the community are just like really touching and insightful and funny um and uh yeah i guess like a real insight into the types of patience you would have to have back in the day to try and connect with people because you know they're giving their po boxes and you know waiting you know waiting a few months for a letter to arrive and then you know waiting a few months for their letter to be read and just like back and forth thing like that and mm. you know these days i get grumpy if someone has applied <laughs> to me on grinder in half an hour so, you know it's a very different world and then our colleague ice he was the curator of our um Jakarta in the 90s, an incomplete history exhibition. Um, essentially, what we were just trying to do is capture um, a bit of an insight into what Jakarta was like in the 1990s. Um, in community, Jakarta in the 90s is kind of, I guess, references a bit of a golden age in terms of um, kind of queer nightlife in Indonesia, um, especially for um, the warrior groups and for gay men. There was a huge, vibrant scene of um, nightclubs, um, discotheques, um, and I guess uh, warrior performance troops uh, mm. that you know really. Oh, and warrior-run um, beauty salons and hairdressers, and you know culturally they just like v- very much dominated um, the the scene in Jakarta in the nineties. You know, just in I guess the same ways that the nineteen nineties was a cultural decade in many parts of the world where queer communities like really rose to the forefront in yeah. dominating the um the how to have fun scene <laughs> um so um yeah it's it was a small collection um i guess due to covid um we didn't get as many materials as we would have hoped but um there's a beautiful uh photo collection um, from a trans woman that ran a salon throughout the 1990s. Um, there's some great photos of parties put on by an organization called Ipos or Gaya Petawi, um, which ran, um, you know, large collections of, I guess, cabaret shows and theater productions and nightclubs um, throughout, you know, various venues in Jakarta as well. And I, yeah, and I guess the... Um, Kind of even in the you know, more mainstream giant nightclubs in Jakarta, there was always a huge queer presence in the in the nineties. So we're just trying to capture a bit of that. Um, and yeah, but I think by the end of it, we'll just like oh, there's so you know there's so so many stories here. There's so much going on in this you know giant city. You know, Jakarta on a bad day is you know, roughly the population of Australia in one place. <laughs> so, um, and I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've gotten a sense um, from me and City back, going back and forth that, you know, Indonesia is such a giant um, place. There's uh, so many cities that all have their own histories. Is it different if, like, you're talking about archive as well. Is it, you know, there's a lot of happen, have had happen in Banda Aceh, mm. especially with queer community there, especially the warrior, because they're so visible. They, especially last year, some has been arrested, some mm. has been killed. So is that going to be on your, also the history of the archives? Yeah. I mean, like, uh, our, our focus for, like, tw- 2022 uh 
are mostly in five cities, five four cities that we had kind of like uh, based on on like who to contact at what events and things like that. And it it will be like Yogyakarta, yeah. which is like uh, where the Wari Al Fatah is. Yes. And then Surabaya, uh, where the Gaya Nusantara, uh, one of the first uh, and first and last, uh, how you call uh, it's it? the first gay and lesbian organization, yeah, um, and st- still ongoing today. Um, and Solo Malang, where the parties was uh, were so uh, live there, and then Makassar, uh, where this like, yeah, gay community. And like Guardia community uh, kind of like grew up uh, until now, and yeah, I mean like slow, slowly we'll we'll go like to another cities in uh, in Indonesia, yeah. and yeah, uh, we've been having this kind of like uh, feedbacks also from our audience that we've been focusing on like mostly Java, yeah, and okay. like yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, you know. At the moment, in terms of field trips, it's probably a small team of about um, eight, eight, nine people that get involved in the field trips. Um, you know, they're 10 days. They're really intense. Um, you know, mostly it's like getting up very early and getting to bed really late. Um, and, you know, as um, romantic as kind of doing these field trips sound, a lot of it is just sitting down and like scanning hundreds of documents. <laughs> um scanning hundreds of documents in um, someone's lounge room. Um, But we're hopeful that uh, next year or the year after we'll be able to focus on Eastern Indonesia. Um, For those who don't know, Eastern Indonesia is the majority um, Christian or Catholic parts of Indonesia. And there's been some really strong, um, um, you know, very strong activism in those parts of Indonesia and very strong uh, trans women communities. Indonesia has been, there's a lot of influence with Dutch influence. Mm. Um, are you going to take this exhibition to Holland at some stage? Well, uh, our focus will be actually like when we are talking about our public, our focus will be like giving this history back to the community first. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, it can be, can be. Sometime in the <laughs> because future. Because um, I've, I've visited Holland, especially uh-huh. in Amsterdam. There's a lot of Indonesians who lives there. Mm. Every corner, there's Indonesian restaurants everywhere. <laughs> so I feel at home. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that's why I asked you that question. Yeah, I think for us, it was really important to make all of our materials available to the, the communities in Indonesia. Because I, I think what we got a sense of really early on was that um, a lot of, a lot of young, especially younger queer Indonesians, were only really accessing their history via these Western academics, and even you know queer researchers in Indonesia, when they were writing about it, they were essentially writing it, writing about their own histories, um, by kind of doing their own analysis of these Western academics. So what we wanted to do was make sure that you know. Um, obviously ethically and with um, the community's safety in mind, but make sure that people could access um, these primary sources um, from their community firsthand instead of having to kind of, um, you know, go through the West in order to even access their own histories. Yeah, and just to finish up, I'd love to hear one highlight from each of you 
about this process or about the exhibition because I'm sure it must be such a rewarding experience to finally get this off the ground and, and be able to share your amazing work um, with Melbourne. An artist outside of uh, the Queer Indonesia archive um, had been going through our lesbian magazine materials and she came across a series of, um, I guess, personals between uh queer women in Indonesia and it inspired her to do this really bittersweet um, beautiful comic series imagining the kind of um, letter love affair between two queer women in Indonesia and kind of heard her you know using the archive to inspire this um, you know queer creative work to me was just like okay this is exactly what the archive is all about kind of giving um, queer Indonesians access to their own histories and them them taking it in a completely unexpected um, direction to kind of speak both to the history but also kind of situations that are going on now. Yeah, for me personally, I, I did this three-month residency doing uh, archiving process in Yogyakarta uh, back in November until like February this year. And it was really exciting for me because I've lived there for 13 years before and then I re-experiencing like the city from different perspective. I was, mm-hmm. I was a bit distant from the communities. I mean, I, I was, I was not sure uh, about my identity. But now, like uh, in two thousand and twenty one until twenty twenty two, I was like re-experiencing the city from the history of the queer community, and it was like, it was, it was really beautiful for me because finally I found like. Uh, a route in a way because I've been moving around like live from one city to another since I was a kid so be able to find a route like it was yeah it was kind of like beautiful for me and then like uh, knowing like the histories of the communities there and how they kind of like get together and then like find friends find a date and went to a party and things like that was kind of like something that I I might not be experiencing in uh, in a physical way, mm-hmm. but then like emotionally le- listening to their stories is kind of like bringing me back to some kind of like romanticized, uh, roman- romantic moments or period in the past, which finally I can relate to as mm-hmm. a queer Indonesian. And that was uh, Bo Newham and Siti Visata speaking on the Queer Indonesian Archives. If you want to learn more, check out their website at qiarchive.org forward slash en, where you can view three online exhibitions that they've been talking about. And what a way to uh, to go to Indonesia via these exhibitions. I was listening in and... Uh, thought uh, it really uh, shows you how much we can uh, experience from our own uh, homes. We don't have to get on an aeroplane to uh, to understand and experience what um, life and uh, history is taking place uh, in other parts of the world. And I love the idea of diving into that 90s culture that uh, 
they were talking about. So uh, we're going to be talking about nurses and the COVID situation shortly. But uh, before then, I wanted to just have a bit of a chat about another report that got handed down yesterday. It must be a big day for uh, government reports. The State of the Environment report, uh, the most comprehensive assessment of the health of every aspect of our environment, was released yesterday. And this report is quite controversial because it was held back by the previous Liberal National Government who refused to release it um, despite pressure from scientists and conservatives. But the new Labor government released the report yesterday. You can read it if you hop on the uh, web at soe.dccew.gov.au forward slash. And the report goes further than any report before by describing how our environment is affecting the health and well-being of Australians. It's also the first to include Indigenous co-authors and it analyzes the best available evidence over the last five years in order to guide policy and action. As you might expect the findings are quite grim. The health of Australia's environment is poor. It has deteriorated over the past five years due to pressures of climate change, habitat loss, invasive species, pollution and mining. So according to the report, uh, we are warned, as we know, that the natural world holds the key to our well-being and survival. So uh, more action needed, consistent action, constant action. What can you do out there? Listeners can contact their local environment groups and council. You can get involved in the solutions by writing to your local member and asking them what action they will be taking uh, in response to this report. There's going to be a lot of discussion on the airwaves uh, waves about this in the coming days and weeks, but we just wanted to make a mention of it this morning because uh, it's breaking news that it's actually come out now finally. We're going to go to an announcement and uh, when we come back, we'll be talking with Laurie-Anne Sharp from the Nurses' Union. Stay tuned. You're on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire. Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire. 11am to 2pm every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. 
Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. Global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop, take a breath, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. And you're back on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Claudia. It's the 20th of July, 2022. The time is 8.17am. And if you're feeling a little bit cold, it's because it is one degree outside this morning. <laughs> it's, uh, that's pretty cold for uh, 8 o'clock on a, on a Wednesday morning. So um, I hope you've, you're rugged up and uh, you've got your mask on. We're going to be talking now with uh, someone that's going to reinforce the message about keeping safe and warm this winter. And uh, we'll uh, have her on the line in a moment. So I'm sure you remember that during the dark days of the pandemic last year, nurses and medical staff were pleading with the community to adhere to public health advice in order to reduce hospital admissions and save the system from collapse. A year on, we see hospitals buckling under yet another wave of COVID infections and nurses are issuing a new SOS for public support. Here to tell us why nurses need our help is the Assistant Federal Secretary of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, Lorianne Sharp. Welcome to 3CR, Lorianne. Good morning, Claudia. Good morning, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us on this cold morning. <laughs> Can you tell us, Lorianne, what the situation is for nurses well, um, I can, Claudia. It's it's quite dire. Um, it's a very stressful situation at the moment. As nationally, we reach over 5,000 hospital admissions, um, breaking records in three states, WA, South Australia and um, the ACT, in terms of hospital admissions. We know that during the second wave with the Omicron peak in January that we reached just under 5,500, so we're at almost at that point. Um, this has come at just six months after that wave, of course. Um, our nurses and all healthcare workers, for that matter, are incredibly exhausted and shouldering this burden. We've also It's also compounded by um, 
you know, thousands of nurses and midwives and carers being furloughed because they are, in fact, themselves sick or caring for um, sick loved ones um, at home. So this puts extra burden on the healthcare system when we are unable to meet um, adequate staffing levels. And what's the impact on the health care that you can give when you're uh, under these stresses? Yeah, well... um, I mean, listeners can appreciate that healthcare gets compromised when there just isn't enough staff to go around. So we experience um, delays in emergency care. There's been long waits at EDs. We've all heard about the ambulance ramping and the waiting times. But, you know, this extends to um, primary care as well, like general practice settings, community health, um, you know, all levels of care. When you don't have enough staff, and, um, and when you have staff who are working, you know, double shifts, long shifts, long consecutive days, had their leave cancelled or asked to come back for leave because of short staff, it does put a lot of pressure and it means that, um, you know, care can get missed just because there isn't enough staff and you can get preventable deaths. Mm. Very grim. Um, it is grim, yeah. It's really tough time. And we've really tough time. just had elective surgeries go back. Um, so I guess uh, it's really important to be able to continue care in other areas as well. And if the resources are so stretched, then it puts the whole uh, service on sort of alert, really, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, it's, it's really disappointing for members of the public who have had their, been waiting for their elective surgery. And I guess, you know, that's just uh, when we're in crisis, we need to grab all the resources that we can so it's a necessary um, intervention. But it also has long-term impacts, you know, with the people who have had delayed surgery and potentially, you know, the chronic disease burden that those delays can create. So it's, it, is a, it can be a vicious cycle um, in that regard. And I think also that these things also then impact people's mental health because yeah. if you've got a physical ail- ailment, that's bad enough that you have to go to hospital uh, or have surgery, you're already suffering. Then if you've got the delays and all the uncertainty around yeah. when you can have that addressed, that's another layer. Um, and then, yeah. yeah, so yeah, it's all uh, just sort of stacks up. It is. It's very difficult and mental health um, is also a priority and I think, you know, a lot of people are they're scared because they might be waiting for surgery or waiting for a particular day and with the COVID cases so high in the community at present um, they know that if they were to get the virus and that delays things further so things are pushed back even further so there's lots of disruptions um, and you know we're also two and a half years into this pandemic and um, it, it's not over and it doesn't look like finishing soon and I think the reality of that is is really hard to bear for many people and I think you know you can sort of see the current conversation around masks and how it's polarised people and I think Part of that is that when people see masks, they have this sort of almost like a post-traumatic response, particularly if you're a Victorian, um, who, you know, have had a, a different experience from the rest of the country in some ways. We've sort of, um, you know, had the brunt of a lot of things before we were able to get access to vaccinations and keeping the rest of the country safe by the interventions that we took here. And I think that, um, you know, that all plays a part. But we, we really do need a 
a national um, public health awareness campaign and education campaign so that people, you know, know what COVID is, know the risks of COVID, know how to prevent it for themselves, to protect their family and to ease the burden on the healthcare system, which in turn, you know, helps to support nurses and midwives and carers so that they can do the work to support the community. Yeah, there's been virtually no government mandates um, in place to protect the community for quite a while now. So it's really been left up to individuals to chart their own course when it comes to protecting against the virus and uh, all the other winter bugs that are around. What are the main things that you're asking people to do to protect themselves? Well, I think, you know, there's really three key things that... um, individuals can do to help, you know, lower the curve. And that is to, if you're sick, if you're unwell, then please stay at home. That's sort of the number one rule. Even if you, you know, even if it's not COVID, um, if you are unwell, then the best thing to do is stay at home. Uh, the second thing to do is to to wear a mask indoors and um, whilst any mask is better than no mask. We do recommend that it's um, an N95 mask, which is the, the ones that fit better around the face, not the surgical mask. So people can get access to one of them. They're much more effective in this more contagious Omicron stage. So that's two. And the third one is, of course, to be as up-to-date as possible with your vaccinations because we know that that prevents serious illness and death. Um, and they're three things that everyone can do right now to help decrease the burden on our healthcare system and support nurses and midwives and carers who are, you know, really shouldering the load at the moment. Um, it's a very difficult environment to work in um, out there in the healthcare sector. So they're really three simple things. And, and you know, we're calling on the federal government to um, initiate a federal, a federal, a national federal education campaign so that people know how COVID spreads and they are empowered on the measures that they can take to prevent themselves getting sick and their family members. Yeah, I think that would be a really good idea because I think some of the messaging, like you were saying, when people see a mask, they have a sort of reaction as if it brings back uh, the memory of the lockdowns. But I also think some of the messaging um, is a bit fatigued as well, so that yeah. um, some of the information that that is is out there is actually quite different to what it was, um, you know, last year or the year before. But I'm not sure how people are absorbing that because they're tired of thinking about, you know, how That's to right. look after themselves. And um, yeah, I know recently I looked at something about the different types of masks and. It really said, yeah, the N95 was the, the one to get. So I went out and invested in yeah. some of those. They're a little bit more expensive, but you they can, you can yeah, wash yeah. them. And, um, yeah, the pharmacist said that as long as it's still tight and um, hasn't got uh, loose, that, yeah, it's fine to, to use. So yeah, even though they cost sure. a little bit more, the benefit, you know, was sort of 50% more coverage. So, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you. We've only had time for a very short chat this morning um, because we're coming up to the end of our show. 
but uh, it's a really important message for people out there to look after themselves and also uh, to remember the, the people that care for us when uh, we get sick are also human beings and are doing it tough as well. So, yeah, thank you to all our nurses and the people that look after the community and we, uh, we hope uh, we all get through this. That was Laurie-Anne Sharp, Assistant Federal Secretary of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, calling on Australians to protect themselves this winter in order to help themselves and frontline nurses and the care system as a whole. And you can find out the latest government advice by going to www.coronavirus.vic.gov.au but really those three simple messages, uh, masks, vaccinations and staying home if you're sick are the way to go. So I'd like to thank all our guests this morning who have come on the show and shared their insights and a special uh, shout out to the Queering the Air team as well. And now it's time for Stick Together. We'll see you next week. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.